We have a section which is called Section 99B, and this is a bit of an unwieldy, very powerful, very dangerous section, not dissimilar in some senses to Section 100A in that the drafting's not great, it's been there for a long time, it's sort of sat somewhat dormant and probably not that well understood. What the section is trying to do is avoid an Australian beneficiary getting out of tax where you have a foreign trust that's accumulated its income and then characterised it as capital and then distributed it to the Australian resident who didn't create the trust. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to run and grow your firm. Welcome to episode 399 of Text Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to DocuSign for sponsoring this episode. Today, let's start a two-part mini-series about the taxation of foreign trusts. When does a foreign trust become an Australian tax resident? And how are distributions from foreign trust to Australian residents taxed in Australia? And why does section 99B, ITAA 36 and also section 99C Why do they instill so much fear in anybody who looks at foreign trusts? These are just some of the questions Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Melbourne will discuss with you in this episode. So today, let's look at the general rules for foreign trust. And then next week, Andrew will go through an example with you to show you how these rules actually work. The example Andrew will use will be a New Zealand trust distributing to Australian residents and also New Zealand residents. And of course, there are no separate rules for New Zealand trust as such. The Australian rules apply to any foreign trust, no matter where this trust is in the world, apart from double tax agreements, of course. But New Zealanders, of course, are often on special category visas that make them temporary residents. And Section 99B, for example, doesn't apply to temporary residents. So there are some specific rules, some quirky details that only apply to New Zealand trusts and to New Zealanders who are on special category visas. And Andrew will touch on these as well next week. In this mini-series, we touch on TAP and TAP. TAP as in taxable Australian property and TAP as in taxable Australian real property. As you know, TAP is a subcategory of TAP. TAP consists of TAP but then also indirect interest in TARP, business assets of a PE in Australia, and then also the options or right to acquire any of those. So TAP is basically TARP plus the business assets of a PE, plus any indirect interest in these, plus any options or rights to acquire any of these. So all TARP is TAP, but not all TAP is TARP. So with this clarification, let's cut across to Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Melbourne about the taxation of foreign trusts in Australia. The rules regarding taxation of trusts are in Division 6 of the 1936 Act, and those rules have been around for a long time. The trouble is that they've been added to over time. There's been things inserted. There's been Band-Aid approaches put in, and now we have 
quite a convoluted division. And outside of Division 6, we also have some separate CGT rules that cover trusts. And to advise on trusts, whether they're foreign or resident, you really need to have a good understanding of the entirety of Division 6 and how all the concepts sort of mesh together. So you really need to start with what trust are we dealing with? And a trust will either be a resident trust estate, or if it's not a resident trust estate, it'll be a non-resident. And for CGT, there's very similar definitions. There's a resident trust for CGT purposes, but the definitions are basically the same between the two. So the starting point is, what am I dealing with? What kind of trust is it? And that will inform where you go from there. The starting point is to determine, is the trust a resident trust estate or a non-resident trust estate? Once you make that determination, you'll, you'll then be able to follow a pathway to, to work out your next point. Yes. And you said you actually need to ask it twice. You need to ask it for income tax and you also need to ask it for CGT. And you said it's basically the same, but because you're distinguished between it, I get the feeling it's not 100% the same, correct? You need to ask this question twice, once for income tax and once for CGT. Is that right? Yes. And the consequences of that may actually be different depending on what type of income is, whether it's a CGT type of income or whether it's a, a, an ordinary type of income because you're dealing with different divisions and you're dealing with a sort of a horrible intersection between different concepts. Does one of the reasons for a difference come in that, for example, a trust could be a resident, but then the property, for example, might be not TAP, you know, not taxable Australian property, and hence CGT might work differently than if it was TAP? Is that why we need to ask this question twice? Yeah, yeah. We've also got separate rules in Revision 855 dealing with things like taxable property and non-taxable property. And you can have situations where the same trust is not taxed or the beneficiaries or the trustee are not taxed on the income, but they are taxed on capital gain from the sale of shares, for example. So it doesn't really make a lot of sense from a logical perspective, but you know, tax is never really that logical, is it? So we just have to deal with each of them sort of separately, if that makes sense. But we also have that not just with trust, but also with individuals, for example, where, for example, overseas dividend income is covered by the withholding tax of that country and possibly is NANA in Australia. But then the CGT from the sale of that asset is possibly not NANA, but taxable in Australia. We actually have this difference between income and CGT, not just for foreign trust or trust, but also, for example, with overseas shares or similar, correct? Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. So turning to the definition of what a resident trust is, that definition is contained in section 95, subsection 2. And what it says is a trust estate is a resident trust estate if one of two conditions are met. So it's an either or test. So if you meet one of the conditions, the trust is a resident trust estate. The first one is if a trustee of the trust is a resident at any time during the year of income, then the trust is a resident trust estate for the full year. So let's just repeat that firstly. If a trustee of the trust is a resident at any time during the year, then the trust is a resident for the full year. So to come up with a silly hypothetical, Let's say we have individual trustees and we have three trustees, one of which is a resident for one day of the Australian income year, 
the trust is a resident trust estate for the entire income. Now, one day is a bit ridiculous, but you can come up with another scenario where they're resident for part of the year and uh, it means the whole trust is in for the whole year. This is why it's generally not a good idea to have individuals as trustees. I've dealt with a couple of situations recently where concerning foreign trusts, which have individuals as trustees, and one of those individuals has moved to Australia. In that case, that individual has become a resident. And even though they're one of three trustees, well, the trust is now a resident trust state. So that's your first test. Yeah. And so the first lesson for the day is never have individual trustees on a trust that could possibly become, or let me say it differently. So the first lesson of the day is never have an individual trustee in a foreign trust that potentially could have a trustee that at some stage becomes an Australian resident. Yeah, I think phrased differently. If you're dealing with a foreign trust and any of the trustees are individuals and if there's any talk about migrating to Australia or having any connection to Australia, stop at that point and really think about things. Cease and desist. You may be bringing the whole trust into the Australian tax net and if you can avoid dealing with Division 6, then that's going to make your life better. So that's the first test. The second test is a central management and control test. So what it says is if the central management and control of the trust estate is in Australia at any time during the year of income, then the trust is a resident trust. And that very much reminds us of a whole lot of things, especially for companies, VF, CMC, all the time. So it's interesting to see that that also applies to trusts. Yeah, the CMC concept is important here. Now, there's quite a bit of discussion on CMC in the context of companies, and don't need to go into the detail of that here. But there's a lot less for a trust estate. But the common view is that really those same sort of principles should really apply because they're about sort of where the overarching decision-making lies, essentially. And of course, with a trust, you can have trustees and appointers and guardians and protectors and all sorts of other uh, positions. Can I ask you something just slightly off topic? The um, going wisdom is that in a company, you really should just have one director because why put several people's private assets at risk? It's much better to just keep it clean and just have one director who needs to worry about DPNs and personal assets being at risk. Would you say a similar argument is also for trustees that if you do have individual trustees, then at least don't have several individual trustees, but just have one? Or if you want to have several ones, go for a corporate trustee? I think that's right. I think when you've got multiple trustees as individuals, the consequences from a tax perspective attached to each of them. So yeah, there's sort of not a lot of good reasons. If you want to have multiple people involved, there's not a lot of good reasons why there should be multiple individuals and not a, a corporate entity. So basically always have, a, have one trustee, either one individual, if it has to be an individual, or one corporate trustee. Yeah. So We've applied that test and it could apply differently year on year as circumstances change. And we'll get a result where the trust is either a resident trust or a non-resident trust. So if you're dealing with a situation where you have an individual in Australia who's resident, who might be a beneficiary of a foreign trust, then so long as none of the trustees are residents of Australia and the CMAC is not in Australia, then the trust itself will not be a resident trust estate. 
So if you're dealing with a situation where you have an individual who's a resident of Australia and has some involvement in a trust, whether as a beneficiary or otherwise, so long as the trustees are not residents of Australia themselves, or so long as the central management and control of the trust is not in Australia, then the trust will be a foreign trust. And that's generally going to make things easier um, in terms of compliance with tax obligations and tax consequences. Oh, really? Resident trusts are usually easier than... No, sorry. Foreign trusts... Uh, sorry. Foreign trusts are usually easier than... Well, if you're a resident trust, you're into the thick of Division 6. When you're into the thick of Division 6, then you've got all the rules that we're sort of more comfortable with dealing with things like Section 97, working out which beneficiary is presently entitled and the proportionate tax method and all of that. So... Sometimes there's reasons why you'd want to be a resident trust and sometimes there's reasons why you'd want to be a non-resident trust. And what would be common reasons to want to be one or the other? Well, we'll go through that as we go through the differences between the two. So if you're a non-resident trust, let's say you've done that determination and the trust is a non-resident trust, there's a couple of ways in which an Australian beneficiary could be taxed. The first one is actually through Section 97. So Section 97 itself it doesn't limit itself to resident trusts. If you're an Australian resident and you receive a income of a trust estate, you are assessed on a share of the net income of that trust estate. So foreign trust derives rental income, makes Australian beneficiary presently entitled to rental income in the same income year. It just goes into section 97, relatively straightforward, but also that can be rather easily avoided by the trust, the foreign trust accumulating its income and say adding it to corpus and distributing it the next income, which is why we have other rules. So first one, section 97, concepts that people will be very familiar with. Okay, so section 97 basically doesn't really distinguish between resident and foreign trusts. It's basically all the same. Whatever income is allocated to an Australian resident beneficiary is tax yeah you know, is taxable income under under section 97 correct essentially yes so now we are hoping for another section that will take this income out again or is it just this loophole or i shouldn't call it a loophole but this alternative you refer to where you said you don't distribute the trust just keeps the income and then turns it into corpus for the following year well, that's how Section 97 can be quite easily avoided, uh, negotiated. We're going to use the word avoided, but negotiated. So there's two rules that deal with the tax in other ways. The first is a set of unwieldy provisions called the transfer of trust rules. If you're lucky, you'll never have to deal with these because they are awful. What they do in a big picture sense is they attribute the income of what's called a transfer of trust to certain Australian resident beneficiaries. So they not necessarily have to be beneficiaries in the sense of receiving a distribution, but within the, the class of beneficiaries. And this is sort of similar to your controlled foreign company rules. Exactly. I was going to say that sounds exactly like the CFC, where you basically completely remove the shell 
the uh, corporate veil around the company and just pull basically all income directly into an Australian tax return. It's basically the same concept, isn't it? You basically act like the trust doesn't exist and everything yeah. happened on behalf of the beneficiary directly. Yeah, correct. I think the controlled foreign company rules are actually simpler than the transfer of trust rules because at least with a company, you've got shareholdings and so forth to sort of trace through a bit more easily. The key takeaway with the transfer of trust rules is they can't apply if Australian residents have not contributed some property or services to the trust. So if they're the ones that created the trust or have gifted to the trust or performed some services uh, not at an arm's length value, then you can potentially be in the transfer of trust rules. And if you are, then the income and gains of the trust as derived are attributed to those individuals. So that means never contribute property or any services like bookkeeping or investment management services or anything of that type to a foreign trust. Yeah, correct. If the person's an Australian resident, then don't do those things. I wanted to ask you something different, but you might cover this in a minute. So uh, tell me if, if it's still coming. Now, before we ask Andrew this question and hear his answer, here's a quick word from our sponsor, DocuSign. Hi, my name's Diane. I'm an accountant and I'd like to make a confession. Last financial year, I seriously screwed up. I left my paperwork in a taxi. Yep, confidential contracts, tax file numbers... I was mortified. It's why this year, my accounting firm is using DocuSign. Going digital has saved us time, money, paperwork and stress. Make no mistake. Sign up for your free trial at docusign.com.au. Next time, DocuSign. You mentioned this word corpus, that if the trust doesn't distribute, it then just goes into the corpus. Is that the second rule you're going to discuss now? or? Yeah. So we've gone through two issues already. The first is when the trust, foreign trust, makes an Australian beneficiary presently entitled to income, section 97. The second is where those Australian beneficiaries either created the trust or contributed services, uh, which is the transfer of trust rules. So the inverse of that is if the Australian resident beneficiaries neither created the trust nor received income from the trust, then neither of those first two rules will apply, which leads me to the third issue and perhaps the biggest issue here. We have a section which is called section 99B. And this is a bit of an unwieldy, very powerful, very dangerous section, not dissimilar in some senses to section 100A in that the drafting's not great. It's been there for a long time. It's sort of sat somewhat dormant and probably not that well understood. But yes, we have this section 99B. What the section is trying to do is avoid an Australian beneficiary getting out of tax where you have a foreign trust that's accumulated its income and then characterized it as capital and then distributed it to the Australian resident who didn't create the trust. That's at its heart. So what it does in terms of its drafting is you have two sections. You have section 99B and 99C. What 99B says, it's very, very broad. It says that an amount received is assessable income. That's how it starts. So it says, at any time during a year of income, an amount being property of the trust estate is paid to, applied for the benefit of a beneficiary who is a resident. So 
if an amount of money goes to a beneficiary who is a resident, it's assessable income of the beneficiary subject to the next section. So your starting position is, read literally on those words, if I am a beneficiary of a trust, and the legislation doesn't actually say foreign trust anywhere, it just says trust. If I'm a beneficiary of a trust, then I need to include accessible income under this section unless I could get out of the section, essentially. So how is section 99B then different to 97? Because that's exactly what 97 says. Yeah, yeah, that does, and we'll come to that. So it's all in the exclusions to the section. So... To answer your question, there is an exclusion from 99B where an amount has been included in the assessable income of a beneficiary pursuant to section 97 and 99 and 98 and all those sections, there's actual carve-outs for those assessing provisions. The interesting thing, and just to take a slight tangent, is I mentioned that there's no actual mention in the legislation of a foreign trust or a resident trust. 99B is sort of agnostic in that in that regard. There's some technical arguments and discussion that you can actually have 99B assessments when you have a resident trust. And this could come up, for example, when you have mismatches between trust law income and taxable income. There's comments from the ATO in some private binding rulings to say that the intention of the section isn't to apply to resident trusts. And that's based on the words in the explanatory memorandum. So you could draw some comfort from that, but from a technical perspective, the words actually don't limit the section to foreign trusts. Of course, there might be out under section 97, 98, 99 anyway. Okay. So, so that means section 99B is actually not just about foreign trusts, correct? No. Well, not in its wording. It's really interesting because the legislation doesn't refer to foreign trusts, but the explanatory memorandum is littered. So the explanatory memorandum that introduced the section has a like at least 10 references to foreign trust estate. These rules are intended to do this foreign trust estates. It's a little bit similar to what section 100A and all the discussion we've had there where the words are very broad, but the intention when the legislation was brought in was to do quite specific things. So you could sort of draw some parallels between the two. So we have an exclusion from 99B for the sections that we're sort of familiar with. We have an exclusion for where an amount's been assessed under the transfer of trust rules. So it wouldn't make sense to tax under that and under this. And the biggest one is really this corpus exclusion. So what the exclusion says is you start with the amount of the distribution as accessible income, and then you reduce it. And you can reduce it by so much as represents corpus of the trust estate. Let's just stop there for a second. So if the amount represents corpus of the trust estate, then potentially this section can apply. There's another caveat to it, which I'll come to in a second. So if you use the corpus exclusion, then section 99B can't apply, but then you still have section 97, correct? Well, no, but section 97 only applies where there's income of the trust estate. So it's not income of the trust estate if it's a capital distribution. Okay. And the ATO accepts that income turns into corpus in the following year. So something that is income on the 30th of June suddenly is corpus on the 1st of July. The ATO accepts that? Yeah, so there's another rider to the section which I'll come to which deals with that situation. But I think the accepted view is corpus is what trust law determines corpus to be. So if I have income and I accumulate it in a trust, then yes, it is corpus. It is, I mean, there's an argument the other way, but I think 
the better position is that it becomes corpus at that point in time. And most trustees will say that. Can I take a step back? When you just look at the general concept of trusts, the trust is like a leaky bucket. Any income that pours into the trust has to pour out into the beneficiary's tax returns or into a bucket company. Why suddenly is the trust a sealed bucket where income can just sit, not pour down to the beneficiaries and then suddenly morph into something different called corpus? Why doesn't the income just drain through to the beneficiaries in the year the income is earned? It's a good question. So from an Australian tax practitioner perspective, your comment's right that it's very rare for a trust to accumulate income. It's not impossible. A trustee can choose if it wanted to, to accumulate income. It would just be taxed at the top marginal rate. So that's why generally it's not done. But there's nothing stopping the trustee from an Australian discretionary trust from accumulating its income. Where you start looking at foreign trusts, the rules are going to be completely different in each country. And they may not have such a strong driver towards distributing their income. To take discretionary trusts that are founded in New Zealand uh, as an example, it's quite common for those to actually accumulate their income. So it's, it's not the case that every foreign trust you see will distribute its income each year. And those will depend on the laws of the country which the trust is established. So based on this, New Zealand trust would be a perfect way to pool investments and not to pay any tax. Because, for example, New Zealand doesn't have capital gains tax, as far as I know. So you could do major trading in New Zealand through the trust, and any income you just have as corpus, you don't distribute it, and then the following year it comes out as corpus, and you don't pay any tax on it. That would be too good to be true, um, because there's a, there's a qualifier to that corpus definition. So to be excluded from 99B, firstly... It needs to represent corpus of the trust estate. That's the first question. And as you sort of alluded to, that isn't actually that hard. So long as what you're doing is distributing an amount that represents corpus, then you would tick that requirement. So you do your documentation, right? It's listed as corpus. It's a capital distribution under the deed. You're probably going to tick off those requirements. The second requirement is... What the requirement says is, well, okay, it has to be corpus, but we're going to exclude certain types of corpus. And how it does that is it says that even if it's corpus, it's not going to be a reduction if it's attributable to amounts derived by the trust on the assumption that the trust was a resident of Australia. So in other words, accumulated income is going to be taken out of this category. So in your example, we have a New Zealand trust. Let's say it makes a capital gain. Capital gain is not subject to tax in New Zealand. It's then put into corpus in the trust, and then they make a distribution to an Australian resident beneficiary. Step one, is a corpus of the trust estate? Yes, it's corpus of the trust estate. Step two, is it attributable to amounts derived by the trust? It, and if the trust was a resident, would those amounts be taxed in Australia? Well, yes, they would be taxed in Australia because... We have a comprehensive CGT regime. So even though it's corpus, it's not excluded corpus. Yes. So it gets confusing now because you have an exclusion from an exclusion. So yeah, corpus as such is excluded. So that means Section 99B wouldn't pull it into taxable income. Yes. So corpus is excluded, but then you have an exclusion from an exclusion. 
meaning the corpus distribution would still be pulled into taxable income if the trust is a resident and is no longer a foreign trust. Yeah, yeah. The summary of all that is that accumulated income or something that a foreign trust receives that would be taxed in Australia is not going to be excluded under 99B. It's going to be included. You're really only going to get the corpus exclusion for things like gifts. So for example, let's say you have a foreign trust and it was gifted property in 2010 and then it was sold in 2020. And let's assume that there's no capital gains tax. And then all the money is distributed to an Australian resident as a capital distribution. Some of it's going to be exempt, but the amount that's going to be exempt is going to be based on the 2010 market value. So you would work out your proceeds from the sale sold in 2020. What's the excluded corpus amount? Well, it's the amount actually basically gifted to the trust in the first place that wasn't in a gift on income. So that's the amount that is the excluded corpus. The gain is not excluded corpus because it would be taxable in Australia. Why is the gain not excluded if the trust is 100% of foreign trust? The trustee is New Zealand, has nothing to do with Australia, and just the beneficiaries are in Australia. Why would the capital gain, you know, the unrealized capital gain, or even then the realized capital gain, why would that not be excluded? Because the trust is not an Australian trust. The trust continues being a foreign trust. Yeah, correct. That's a good question. The reason is that this excluded corpus requirement is on the assumption that the trust is a resident. So essentially you need to ask the question, if this trust was a resident, would tax be paid in Australia? So in that example, if this trust, if this New Zealand trust was a resident of Australia, it acquired property in 2010 and sold it in 2020, would it pay tax in Australia? And the answer would be, well, yes, it would. So even yeah, but that would always be the answer. The answer would always be yes. So if you have a foreign trust that distributes Correct. that distributes to Australian beneficiaries and it doesn't distribute in the year the income is earned, but distributes in the following year and treats it as corpus, if that was an Australian trust, it would always be taxed in Australia. Hence, then the exclusion actually fires into the void. Correct. Well, it, that's why I say this really only covers gifts gifted amounts to a foreign trust. So if it's not a gifted amount to a foreign trust or some other amount that would be tax-free in Australia somehow, it's not going to be excluded from 99B. Velocity Legal in Melbourne. So, a foreign trust is not necessarily better than a resident trust and vice versa. It depends. A foreign trust, for example, doesn't qualify for the year 50% CGT discount and you face Section 99B. So, it all depends. So, in this episode, we covered the general rules about the taxation of foreign trusts in Australia. Let's go through an example next week. Let's take a New Zealand trust that distributes to New Zealand residents as well as Australian residents. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to DocuSign for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.